Welcome back to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and as always, I'm with Sam Backer. Today, we'll be talking to David Turner and Sherry Hu. You might remember David Turner from a previous episode. He is the author of Penny Fractions, a weekly newsletter on the music streaming business. And Sherry Hu is an award-winning journalist. She's done great work writing about the intersection of music, technology, and business. And she also writes Water and Music, which is a newsletter that covers these same topics and more. So we wanted to chat with them because these two are really kind of at the forefront of paying attention to the business side of the music industry and continue to keep tabs on how things evolve. We decided to check in with them this month as a kind of update on a previous episode we did on Hypnosis Song Fund and the kind of ongoing financialization of music. Uh, A lot has happened since we did that episode on hypnosis and a lot more people are starting to pay attention. So we figured it was a good time to check in with Sherry and David to get their thoughts and to find out what has happened since we last covered this expanding and ever evolving space. Also, David is our first reoccurring guest and I'm sure he'll be on the show again in the future. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to go ahead and remind you if you could just take a few seconds to rate and review us. It helps us spread the good word of Money for Nothing. Also, as you've probably heard in previous episodes, we have a newsletter now, and you could sign up for that newsletter at moneyfornothing.substack.com. That's the number four. And don't worry, we will not be flooding your inbox. We're thinking maybe just one or two emails a month. And that will also include bonus content, which we'll be offering a lot more of in 2021. So go ahead and sign up. And here's the music and then the conversation. It's funny because like um, we did an episode about hypnosis, hypnosis song fund, like six months ago now. I don't know. Time is a flat circle. People keep telling me. And I was like. This is crazy. This is a crazy amount of money being thrown around in music publishing. Like, this seems like a whole lot of thing. And then uh, I I had no idea how bonkers things were about to get. So just maybe to start, we could start by just giving our listeners, if they haven't been seeing, they've probably seen a couple of the big headlines, but I'm wondering if you guys could just start by like sketching out a little bit, like how... How much money and is being thrown around right now? Sure. Um, David, do you want to start? Yeah, on? I'll kick. So I guess, like, do we want to start with the, like, Bob Dylan deal? Which, so Bob yeah. Dylan reportedly, again, because none, th- none of these numbers are super exact, but reportedly sold his publishing catalog to Universal, Mu- Universal Music Publishing Group for 300 to $400 million, which I want to say may be one of the biggest ones of these, like, for a single catalog, biggest deals that's like happened in this kind of space, especially in, with the last couple of years, especially. 
and that and that kind of feel like brought a lot of people's attention to this a because like dylan is an iconic artist who's had like a it seemingly complex but actually uh, if you look at his career like for the most part like fairly uh fully integrated into the flows of the record industry right like he's been doing commercials he'll reissue stuff you know um but i think it brought a lot yeah of i mean i feel like i was gonna yeah i would say dylan's pretty much sort of like a template for like the long career like if you could ever imagine like if you start as an artist as a teenager you could only dream of having a dylan career i was just thinking of um a couple of other headlines i mean i actually i messaged david about this uh earlier this week i think just like asking him like how he was reacting or feeling about the fact that there are deals like this. It seems like at least two different kinds of deals like this announced every single week, like the pace of catalog acquisitions from um, a ton of artists uh, of various decades across different uh, genres. Yeah. Like both kind of, you know, historically uh, very, you know, established artists and newer artists like Calvin Harris of all people has like sold his publishing catalog to fine alternative investments, I believe, which is not, not a music focused firm. They're kind of a private investment firm that's interested in <laughs> just owning catalogs to sit on them. We can kind of dive into that dynamic later too. Um, but yeah, so like Bob Dylan is the biggest one, I guess if we're talking about publishing, this is kind of outside of that, but actually very relevant today. Uh, Taylor Swift's masters under um, big machine, were um, sold to Shamrock, which is also another private investment firm. And that was kind of like a secondary sale between Scooter Braun and Shamrock. And I think the price tag for that was also around 300 million. But that was just the master side, not the publishing side. And just today, as of recording this, uh, Taylor Swift announced that she is uh, re-releasing Fearless. So she's like, she is in the process of re-recording all of her songs and they're going to be available commercially. So um, that's kind of outside of, uh, maybe publishing specific acquisitions, but definitely, I would say one of the top headlines in this space. Actually, actually, can you can you actually just real quick, just real briefly, like explain like uh, her motivation behind that? Because that's actually something that Sam and I have kind of texted about and been meaning to talk about. Because it's a quite an interesting move, and I think it all relates. Yeah. So I think from my understanding, so uh, and I think you've like touched upon this a little bit on this podcast already, but. I guess it's it's an also important to preface this by saying that the kind of deal that um, Taylor signed with Big Machine at the time that she first signed it uh, was typical at the time, but is, you know, artists are increasingly advised to avoid it now in terms of being, you know, a very long-term multi-album deal. Um, Big Machine taking majority or, you know, full um, ownership over the master recordings. So like all the albums she made under them. Um, and so that's just like important context that leads to a deal like this even being possible. And so kind of the first wave of controversy around this was when um, Scott Borchetta, I believe, uh, sold Big Machine's masters to um, Scooter Braun. And allegedly uh, Taylor, you know, had very little kind of say in that transaction, have very little agency over that. Um, and so she like went publicly to social media to uh, kind of make her fans aware of the situation and rally them kind of against this kind of transaction. And then Scooter then sold those masters again to Shamrock. And so now, but the interesting thing is that, so now Shamrock technically owns the master recordings that Taylor made at the time. 
um, under Big Machine, but Taylor still owns her publishing, to my knowledge. So she technically has the right to uh, re-record, so like make entirely new master recordings with the songs that she, songs, and by songs here, I mean, you know, the underlying ingredients. So like the lyrics, melody, harmony, uh, etc. So she can re-record new versions of those ingredients that she owns, um, re-release them. And I think she's in a, some kind of licensing or marketing deal on the recording side with Universal Music now. So she's not 100% independent, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she owns her master recordings in that deal as well. And so it's just re-releasing the same music because she owns the publishing and hopefully getting, um, you know, better financial returns off of that. Yeah. And possibly trying to make the originals kind of worthless. Would you say that? Yes, exactly. Like obsolete. Exactly. I think this is really useful to kind of contextualize specifically like what we're talking about and the, the complexities of this issue. Right. So just like the brief rundown for anyone tuning in is that every musical composition, two general streams of copyrights. Right. So Taylor owned the songwriting, the actual songs behind the recordings, but she did not own the recordings. And because of the the deals that she signed in her kind of savvy way through the music industry, now she's able to record new versions, like everyone's been saying, new versions of these songs that she owns. Um, and kind of as a new product where it doesn't matter who owned uh, Mean, it she's going to record a new version of it. And that kind of rights are mostly, though not exclusively, because this is a, a very quick moving space are mostly what we're going to be talking about today so sherry um you, in kind of breaking down some of the, the recent moves in this space you actually kind of i feel like um pointed to three different kinds of companies and that's one of the biggest changes since we last talked about hypnosis where um when we were first looking at that there was kind of this new kind of firm that was music focused and then the old publishing companies and I feel like that landscape is one of the, the things that's changed most drastically, right? Where So you're saying that that Dylan, this huge Dylan purchase was UMG, right? Or the UMG's uh, publishing house, which means that they're playing in this space, the kind of traditional publishers. You then have not just Hypnosis, but Hypnosis and Roundtree and, and a whole host of, of these kind of new financialized, I don't even know what we call them, uh, micro macro publishers <laughs> like small it's like the like publishing equivalent of uh big indie except they're probably uh, they're not even indie or that they probably would call themselves independent so like big indie is a term in uh like the record label world to refer to like becker's group which is like technically independent but owns a ton of you know the biggest indie labels they have budgets that are pretty comparable to majors um so something like that, but yeah, no, no term for that yet. But like with a, with like a little bit of Christie's like sprinkled in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the independently wealthy publishers, maybe. That's that's pretty that's pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we got we got the major publishers who are now being forced to play in this new hyper capitalized like the ante has gone way, way up to play in the space, and you've got the original publishers, some of whom are doing it directly, some of whom seem to have like their own micro versions of these kind of firms. I think Warner, I read that Warner did that. Then you've got these independently wealthy publishers who are kind of like either directly public or really ties to, to large scale um, 
private equity. And then it seems like you also have the emergence of uh, just firm, like equity firms who are just diving headfirst into publishing um, kind of uh, almost like willy nilly. Yeah. And uh, so I think this like specific subset of company falls under the uh, third category of, you know, these kind of private investment companies that are coming in from an outsider's perspective. I recently came across this company called the Crescendo Royalty Fund, I think. And they uh, they have a website, you can go to their website, they say, you know, we own um, the rights to certain hit songs from, I think, like some of Shakira's older catalog. But it's like, it's not, uh, given that she just sold her like publishing catalog to Hypnosis, I think it's like one of her like co-writers writes in certain songs from a while back. So it's like, various like weird fractions of rights, but I like looked more into the kind of how they got those acquisitions. And I found that their investor had purchased those rights via royalty exchange, which is an online um, private marketplace where songwriters, um, producers and artists can sell shares or I, I guess like sell their certain parts of their rights, either, you know, the master side or the publishing side. Um, in their previous catalog and it's kind of done in auction uh, like bidding style process and I think only accredited investors can bid for those rights so like those like platforms like royalty exchange are also enabling like everyday investors with little to no background in music to now own like very weirdly random shares in like specific songs like the, the the catalogs being auctioned on royalty exchange for the most part are not um, you know, to the size of, say, Bob Dylan's entire, you know, like publishing catalog. It's usually much smaller. But it's it's interesting that it's like not just the fact that Hypnosis and Round Hill are publicly traded and now investors can technically own stock in the aggregated value of these copyrights. It's also that there are these private marketplaces coming up where um, outside investors are coming in like through those channels and then starting their own funds from there. Still like totally unproven as far as like how well the fund will actually do. But uh, it's, it's just, I, I see that as kind of like a subset of the like outside investment trend. So this is maybe like a very like silly sounding question, but like what is happening? Yeah. There's sort of this like sort of fun, like there's like a soup. There's kind of like an alphabet soup sort of quality to it where it's sort of like, oh, there are just all these different companies that are sort of trying this, this, trying these sort of new different ways of doing this stuff. And I think that's sort of why I think it sort of caught on the attention is that the Dylan purchase from UMPG was really noteworthy because basically until that purchase, we hadn't seen a Sony, like we hadn't seen Sony Music Publishing, which just changed from Sony ATV to Sony Music Publishing. And we hadn't seen Warner Chapel trying to do any of these kinds of big purchases so once now we now, so now that we sort of have them sort of entering the market it's sort of like oh i don't know to me i'm now kind of wondering like how high can some of these stakes go because if umpg is going to be paying this much for dylan and we already knew how much hypnosis and like primary wave and round hill are going to be paying and then now sam to what you just said they're even newer firms who are now i think there are actually a couple new ones i think one's like the music acquisition company and then another one that's coming from the woman who basically was in charge of Warner's um, arm of, of distribution of um, sort of like investment arm that started a couple of years ago is also starting her own new one. Like, 
it's yeah, it's about to be a very increasingly even more crowded field than we have right now. Um, and I think another like cultural, it it feels like a contradiction when like every time I think about it, but I, it kind of makes sense. So I, I, in terms of thinking about especially why um, artists like. Okay, not just Calvin Harris, another uh, EDM group, the Chainsmokers. They've also uh, sold their publishing, I I believe. And like, they're not, they, they've been around for a while, but they're not, they're definitely not, they haven't been around for as long, haven't, their catalog hasn't been as like literally long lasting as say the likes of um, Bob Dylan, of course. So, and, and I feel like a lot of artists in kind of that generation who've really come up in the last decade or so there's been a lot of rhetoric around uh like ownership from the artist perspective so like the importance of ownership um you see this on the master side taylor swift being you know prime example super important to own your master so you don't get into this kind of situation where your catalog is kind of just being sold back and forth similarly on the, on the songwriting side i feel like um at least early on but like generally the like ownership, owning your copyrights, um, having full creative control, having full say over how your music is, is used in the marketplace is considered a really good thing. And so like none of these, so yes, David is like totally correct in that like this dates back to the, to like the kind of like early to mid two thousands, um, in terms of when outside investors started coming in and like realizing this is a thing, but also I, th- I think like very, like the likes, like Calvin Harris's catalog probably was not even for sale. I probably wasn't even like thinking about buying it. Sorry, thinking about selling it last year. And I think that's why we haven't seen, um, like until uh, one, you know, players like Hypnosis or like Merck, um, Mer- sorry, Merck, Mercuriatus, who, who um, founded Hypnosis, came to the table and were like, we're going to pay uh, exorbitant amounts of money for this catalog. So like until people came in and then also, sorry, until people like that came in and then also until everything around the pandemic, around the lack of touring and just like, I guess people wanting to uh, like maximize the amount of money they had in their bank account as opposed to just like, you know, clinging to this notion of ownership. But then as part of that process, going through like the very complicated journey of like trying to get all of your publishing royalties, probably a lot of these artists were like, we're trying to be as financially secure as, as as we can right now, given the price tags that are being paid for these catalogs. Uh, it's probably best for us financially to to sell these. So just just like also the landscape for a lot of like more recent reasons of the catalogs that are even for sale in the first place has like changed really dramatically, which then leads to all these kind of unexpected names popping up. Yeah, I think Mark, Mark Ronson was like another one. I, yeah, I think he's, that's yeah. a great example. Yeah, I mean, but it, it, it just like a small point, just to put a wedge there, I think you you brought up a good point that really the motivate, one of the biggest motivations behind wanting more artist control is really to earn more money for your work that you've done. Yes, which exactly, this is, which is why this can like feel like a contradiction sorry a, a contradiction and kind of the question that then comes up if you're seeing all these artists who uh even if you're at the you know level someone like calvin harris could be considered like you know uh still has a full career ahead of him hasn't released all of his music yet like uh why are you selling your catalog this early if you could be keeping that money 
for yourself. And so like, yeah, the, the end game uh, increasingly is like not just about ownership. It's about maybe like uh, just getting into the best deal and maximizing value for yourself. So yeah, it's, I think that's why, especially for fans who are seeing whether it's like what Taylor Swift has posted or of course, like Kanye's like Twitter rant of individual PDF pages from his contracts, like fans generally are becoming a lot more aware of like the value of ownership, but then to see someone who is like kind of at that same level also then like selling all their publishing, especially if you don't understand the like differences between those kinds of copyrights or just like the yeah, different ways that those two sides make money. Um, it could just be super confusing. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think, you know, it's, it's really about security, you know, in the end. And, and I mean, yeah. I, I, something I mentioned in our hypnosis episode six months ago or so was that market, I guess like the music market, if you want to call it that is, is, is volatile, you know, the industry, the music industry is volatile. And so it's like, do you take the money on the table or do you assume that you can go ahead and make this same amount of money, you know, plus uh, inflation and interest or whatever, like on your work. And it's like, you know, it, it's actually, it seems like a pretty sound idea to just take the money on the table, especially when, you know, the, the funny thing about it, you could turn around and just invest right into the people who bought it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. That's true. I, yeah, let me go. I want to like go back a little bit in time. I was texting with Sam about this yesterday, but like I wanted to go back a little bit just to provide a little bit of context, just so like, we're sort of, as we sort of said, there are basically sort of like three different entities playing within the music publishing space. And even within those, we probably find more subcategories. But one thing I did want to just sort of say that like last year in my newsletter, Penny Fractions, I like wrote a lot about this topic because the more I researched, the more it just made less and less sense to me. Um, and one of the things that I sort of realized when, when researching about this is that music publishing, similar to the last time I was on Money for Nothing, and we talked we talk about consolidation of like the record industry, a very similar story happened with music publishing, where basically since like the early 80s, there was a slow consolidation of music publishing into kind of what we have today of Warner Chapel, Sony Music Publishing, Universal Music Publishing Group, um, BMG, and like um like which is like Bertelstein Music Publish like like Bertelstein Music Group, and like maybe a couple others. But the difference and the reason why I want to bring this up is that the this whole trend of sort of investment for of sort of investment firms and even pension funds and sovereign wealth funds investing into music catalog pre started really in the mid 2000s and really got accelerated after after the financial crisis and that's kind of where like all of a sudden the money starts really sort of flowing in and i guess i want to mention the consolidation because similarly that by the early by the late aughts and the early 2010s there were only really a, a handful of major publishers as well so one could have imagined we could honestly be in a timeline where publishers bought up all these rights and just so we wouldn't even be having this conversation about hypnosis because all this would be owned by Sony, Warner, or UMG. But instead, what happened is that investors 15 years ago noticed that this was an open market, actually, and started actually buying up a lot of these, like a, a lot of these um, song rights really early on before public, major publishers really caught on to just what so, was really happening. Here. On like a conspiratorial tip, there's also just like capital gains taxes are low right now in a democratic administration, they might raise um, this, if you're going, and I feel like in some ways, like 
why artists are doing this makes to me the most sense. It's like Bob Dylan, someone's like, there's low capital gains and we'll pay you $400 million and then you can get your estate in order. It's like, yeah. My, like, and my question about that is like, does Jacob give it any of this money? Because I heard they're still not talking. <laughs> I'm really worried about, you know, his uh, success with his like one hit wonder, uh, one headlight. You know, I had friends in high school who were devoted Wallflowers fans. Like, Amazing. I, like they, Amazing. that like, wow. Where are they now? The Wallflowers are my friends. <laughs> I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned is to probably another reason for the in, the increase of interest is streaming. Like, what happened since, like, the late aughts and, like, sort of the start of this period? Because I think the first big, not the first big purchase, but the one that I sort of, like, always think about is the Dutch pension fund that bought the Hammerstein and um, the Rivals of Hammerstein catalog in 09. Like, that just being one of the more hilarious, like, headlines to read. But that was 2009. I mean, that was iTunes era. I mean, streaming was just at that point YouTube, I guess maybe MySpace and like whatever weird back channel websites you were on. And now 2021, obviously streaming is the dominant form of how folks are actually like consuming music and how the industry is getting paid. So suddenly, I feel like that's also had a big impact on like suddenly having more interest in these catalogs like, oh, there's money in music again. Yes. So I this actually ties directly into the um, research that David and I have been doing so. We, so we've been looking both into like I guess David's been focused uh, a lot on the like music publishing side, just like you know tracking all the big deals and kind of funding rounds that both these publishing companies and private investors have raised to acquire catalogs um, over the last like ten to fifteen years. And then I've been focused more on the uh, tech side. Maybe this is not related to financialization specifically, but um, kind of like a. Uh, caveat that there are two like caveats that I see on the like streaming argument. So one, it is totally, it is true. Um, streaming is growing. It is definitely, uh, you know, increase the quote unquote shelf life of lots of older songs. Um, it's uh, made the barrier to entry to discovering older catalogs much, much lower, which definitely um, benefits most of the catalogs that are being uh, bought and sold right now. That said, there maybe I'm biased as someone who's like always looking into earlier stage tech trends, always interested in looking at, you know, how, uh, what tech trends are emerging, how they evolve, you know, moving forward into the future. I haven't really seen an actually like interesting or creative vision for how any of these funds are actually going to make money. So like vast majority of the funds are saying, I guess, assuming we're just going to sit on these catalogs, Streaming is going to continue to grow. Maybe we'll get, you know, some songs onto TikTok or something and they'll go viral and then we'll like get royalties. And like, it, it kind of just stops there. And it's it kind of like, I guess, assuming that streaming um, is like the only outlet out there for, you know, making money from music. Uh, David actually wrote recently about uh, social media and hopefully we'll see these funds talk about that more because like even that is not talked about that much, even though you know, like not just TikTok, but like Facebook and Instagram, they now have licensing deals with all the major labels and publishers and PROs. Um, I think, again, as someone who's like, especially interested in the tech side of things, I think there's a lot of stuff um, going on in gaming, kind of in like immersive media that's super interesting, could also like work really well with both like newer and older music that people just aren't like, thinking about and again like a very simple seemingly silly but i think very legitimate question 
how are these funds actually going to make money? There's like, it's, it's a very kind of homogenous approach across the board. Oh, there's also like the, the assumption of like growing sync revenue, which I feel like that is so difficult. Like speaking of volatility in the music industry, that seems pretty difficult to like actually plan out for and say, we're going to get so and so many syncs in, um, you know, we're going to get so and so many syncs this year and it'll grow by X percent. Like that's not really how it works. I don't think, especially on the like individual publisher level. So those are kind of my, uh, my qualms about what I've seen communicated in terms of like people's actual vision, especially given that these funds are publicly traded now for how they're going to make money. Like is your idea of making money just, just spending more to like get more catalogs that doesn't really seem very sound or sustainable. So I'm, I'm still like, itching for that kind of explanation. I was going to say that's, I think, one of the things that I've basically, I've kind of like almost tried to pull myself out of this rabbit hole, trying to do what what Sherry was just doing, was trying to figure out how they're going to make money and where, to me, like that sort of, to me, the longer term implications of a lot of this stuff starts happening there, where it isn't super clear that any of these funds or the folks that work at them, because these are usually not very big companies, they're usually fairly skeletal crews, honestly, are thinking about that kind of stuff. It's like, I haven't heard, yeah, I haven't seen them talk much about video game, like video game licensing, much about syncs. I mean, some of them mention it's like, we're going to do marketing for stuff. And like, I mean, I can find some examples. There's not like a ton there. And then the other thing that I I have written a little bit about, and I also want to write more on is the social media stuff, because that is a huge pot of money, potentially, that's just sort of sitting there. And who's going to claim ownership of that to me feels very, like up in the air. And I know, I've, I know, I've, I know Sam's spoken a bit about this but before on the show, but like there's a lot of money floating around social media companies in the context of music. And like, if it's publishers fighting for it, that's one thing. But if it's the hypnosis song fund and round hill and primary wave who basically are looking at their bottom lines, like, Hey, TikTok, we need to start getting paid a little bit more so we can start hitting our returns. I feel like that'll just start creating some very perverse dynamics much more so than even what we kind of sort of see now in the current What industry. do you mean by perverse dynamics? So this is actually sort of borne out in the... So right now, the UK Parliament has um, been hosting a set of hearings that are about um, basically the digital economy, like the basically the digital economy of music. And like, it's a really wide-ranging sort of like hearing and sort of like scope that, these, the, that they've sort of taken on. And there have been a lot of different conversations that are sort of happening in that space. Um, but the thing that was interesting to me is that like they basically had an, op- an open call for submissions and the music manager forum, which is a sort of gr- like a group of, of managers, mostly based in the UK, some other parts of Europe, basically in their write up to the UK parliament, one of the complaints that they had was that that was that major labels are signing deals with, so- with social media companies and not reporting back. How much, how much their music is being interacted with. So these managers basically can't tell if their artists are not getting paid for the stuff that they should be getting paid for. And that's like a very reasonable concern, but it's also something that's like fairly new. Like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like TikTok, like some of these are fairly new firms, but also them having music deals is a very, very recent thing as of like basically the last two to three years. TikTok just finally got all of their deals like sorted. Like this is all happening in real time. And because it's all happening in real time, like happening right now, I kind of have this like sinking feeling that if suddenly like these firms start wondering, wait a minute, 
I should be getting paid a little bit more. So the music managers forum saw, saw that as an issue, but hypnosis actually in their write-up to the UK parliament basically had like a seven-step program of how to help songwriters right now. And they had a lot of good reforms in there to me, actually, of like getting better, more, more payments. Because again, Britain, the way that the splits between recording and publishing are different than here in the U.S., and actually, honestly, songwriters in the UK are really, really screwed over a lot, honestly. And so Hypnosis had a lot of good suggestions, but why would Hypnosis want songwriters to get paid better? Is it because it's out of the goodness of their hearts? No, it's because they own those publishing catalogs. And so part of me starts to get a little concerned when, like, the people that are leading sort of the, like, legislative potential change and fighting those sort of bigger political battles are these financial-backed firms and not even really the artists that they'll be claiming to represent. And so this gets a little tin foil hat because I don't have like the this leads to X to Y to Z of this is bad. But it's just as a tendency, it seems like a very potentially problematic like route to be going. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that maybe one thing that's a, a, a way to frame it, right, is that like there's a big pot of money out there in terms of what artists could potentially get through social or, or what... Right? artists right and this is the, the tricky thing you have to say um <laughs> what copy what rights holders and some of those are yeah. artists and some of those are publishing companies and some of those are hypnosis which has bought those rights right and there's potentially a big pot of money out there that that could that could uh that could emerge from new kinds of licensing with social right but it's not an infinite pot of money and as we've seen in the music industry for its whole history, that pot of money is going to get divided in certain ways. And my sense is that, and maybe reading, kind of thinking about what you were saying, David, is that like a firm like Hypnosis, if they have, if they amass, let's say in their dreams, a like a truly stellar, like you couldn't really say that you have all the hit music, the best music without some of the songs that hypnosis is licensed which is somewhat true but let's say they, they keep on this acquisition like banquet basically they could negotiate with let's say a tiktok and say we want this kind of payout and that means they're going to get this cut of this huge but limited pie which means that like a different company a mm. indie company artists are gonna there's necessarily there's less of the pie for them and that given how these things normally play out and artists don't get that much of the pie ever, that kind of stands to worry, especially given how opaque all of these deals are and and the fact that there's very little to render them more transparent in the future and that there's not, especially with something, my understanding of something like Sync, right, which is what TikTok would be, right, means that there's not like a, a copyright mandated level of payout it's a little bit more like the wild mm -hmm. west so yeah. uh having you know high level leverage really could produce very different outcomes for very different catalogs yeah that's definitely sort of the like train of thought i've been going down recently and one where like yeah there's not like a super it's very it is very wild west and very unclear the direction it could go and i guess this is actually why even like the other day i was like looking up the copyright royalty board to try to figure out is this, could this even be something that they take on as something, I guess in, in the U.S. context, something they take on to look at and investigate to be like, do we control this? Could we control this? Because otherwise I do sort of think that, 
I, or this is my prediction. I do kind of, they'll make one, I do want to say this is that I think there is definitely going to be a very strong industry of folks figuring out how to split the social media bucket. Like, I think that there will definitely be jobs and probably very solid jobs created from those folks who are going to figure out, okay, tick, a song is popular on TikTok. Is this a recording, publishing? How are we actually going to be splitting this pie up? Because right now it's just these big deals that are very broad. And I just can't imagine that just being a model that could be persistent, especially if you're going to be encompassing all potentially recorded music. I feel like eventually people are going to start looking more closely and wanting to like pull it, pull more money from it, which is why to go back to sort of these like firms, it's like hypnosis or primary wave or um, round hill or whoever. I feel like eventually they'll want to have more seat at the table when they have these conversations because they're going to look at their own catalog and be like, wait, yeah, no, we own part of the Beatles catalog. As owners of the Beatles catalog, we should have some say in how music is orchestrated on this new social platform. I guess to add to the notion of like lack of transparency, especially the gap between like the individual songwriter artist perspective and the quote unquote rights holder catalog aggregators um, perspective. Uh, And this is another kind of, this is part of what I was talking about in terms of like uh, relative opacity around like the actual vision for like monetizing these publishing catalogs moving forward. I'm going to focus on, China as, as a specific example, but I think this applies to a lot of other countries in what, you know, the likes of Spotify call quote unquote rest of world. So like countries outside of the US, Europe and Latin America that are seen as like some of the highest growth opportunities for streaming, um, you know, whether you are a streaming service yourself or mm. you own these catalogs and are trying to maximize growth, you're definitely looking at countries in Asia and Africa. To my knowledge, in, in a lot of those countries, of course, there are exceptions, but China is a great example because it's been in the news so much in the last year with companies like Tencent, which owns Tencent Music, now owning a stake, a stake in Universal Music Group and a stake in Warner Music Group. They you know completely dominate the Chinese music streaming market, which is very consistently pointed to as like, one of the most exciting, fastest growing streaming markets in the world um, for, for the music industry. At the same time, the concept of publishing in China basically doesn't really exist. Or if it exists, there's, I, I think because the notion of like music copyright law in the country is actually relatively new, there's like a very unclear distinction between say like a mechanical license or like a public performance, uh, sorry, or like royalty Um, or like sync royalty, they don't actually have that distinction. And so say your song, you know, uh, does super well in China, uh, but you're trying to figure out how to split that money. It just becomes uh, so much of a mess. Uh, Metadata is like an ongoing issue, has been an issue for years in terms of also like, yeah, figuring out who co-owns the publishing rights to the song, let alone, you know, how to split up those different kinds of royalties properly. So uh, hopefully I, I, aside from just like, uh, you know, what, we, what we've been talking about with like social media, um, which is a super important kind of uh, revenue stream for music copyright and how that pie will be split up. It's also like, what are we going to do with pies that the industry has been like really hyping up, but still don't actually exist? 
on a revenue stream that you know that a lot of people in the industry have been talking about, namely streaming. So um, just wanted to, it's it's kind of a side point, but wanted to raise that as kind of like ho- hopefully what I'll see in either like you know investors asking during earnings calls or these like funds themselves raising in future conversations. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's super that's super interesting, and and like I feel like at some point we're gonna need to do like a whole episode on how those royalty and like music industries work in in places like africa and china that are i guess like emerging markets as they like to say or whatever right yeah <laughs> and, and just kind of to, to to poke at the the balloon a little bit further like whether you know if we think about the assumptions that these catalogs are going to continue to grow in value is predicated on in some ways projections that streaming is going to continue to grow in value but i don't you know, um, there's like uh, in some of like the the, the statements that like uh, Merck Mercuriatus of Hypnosis has said, he's like, you know, uh, a song like a hit song never, you know, never loses value. But it's like, I don't know how popular Bob Dylan is in China. And like there's like if you're thinking about a, a global music market, certain play certain like uh, artists that are hugely important in some countries just aren't going to translate in, in various ways. Or certainly not the full extent of their catalog isn't going to translate the same way. And it seems like the, the continued projection of potential future growth is based on an assumption that like the entire world is the U.S. more or less. And that yes, yes. seems crazy. As, as is a lot of, yeah, yeah. Any financial analysis definitely runs on assumptions just like by default. Analysts are making certain assumptions about, you know, how the how much streaming is going to grow in the future, how many users are going to be. And um, ideally, if they're doing their job right, they make those assumptions clear. Uh, so, and yeah, I think a lot of these projections that especially the likes of hypnosis are making are built off certain assumptions to, to your point about, yeah, kind of how the market is going to evolve, especially internationally, that hopefully they can also make clear moving forward. I was going to say, I'm going to say Sherry, as you're, as you're sort of like pointing out some of these holes, I think it's, I, I'm actually finding this very interesting because it's sort of making it more clear to me that I'm not entirely sure how deeply thought some of this stuff is as we're talking a little bit more about it. Now that I don't think that these people know, don't know what they're doing and aren't sort of thinking through these questions, I'm sure they, they sh- I'm sure they are. And if not, someone will probably yell at me to say that they are. But it's just that I kind of feel like there are so many opportunities and there's such a, this is like potentially a very big kind of like thing. And I don't really feel like it's being discussed and sort of contextualized like that when I do read about some of these firms. And even when you read some of their actual reports, like I know, I mean, you guys talked about it on the first hypnosis episode, but like, even if you read through some of the stuff that they report out, they don't really go super deep into like how we're going to still be making money in 15, 10 or 15 years beyond we just have a lot of catalog. And I find that kind of a little bit more bizarre when I when there are all these other opportunities. And as you were saying, just other markets where like, yeah, we don't really know the lay of the road for what streaming and, and what sort of and what some of these sort of like the revenue that come from publishing in these other markets, because this is entirely kind of uncharted territory. And it's not really articulated well, which may have been why I liked reading hypnosis like submission to the uk parliament because that was maybe the first time i read something from any of these places that implied oh yeah we actually have a vision of what this looks like beyond just having catalog and that vision in that context was just artists need more rights i.e they need to get paid more i.e we need to get paid more and that's not 
a business model, but at least it's something to kind of go off of towards like a future vision of what these companies might be doing. So to kind of um, sum up just a, a little bit. So you've kind of talked about, you know, the various ways these companies are planning to make money. And like one we've said is the, which you talked about kind of briefly at the beginning is the kind of like will manage the songs better and get more syncs because question mark, like line of argument. Two is the streaming is increasing and it's going to bring in more money in the future and that these assets are at some level undervalued argument that they're like they've got long-term value and that financial players can think in a longer term than other people and so that that's why they can move in like this and maybe also there's some like useful uh macroeconomic slash political trends that make this a particularly good moment to do this and then the third one it seems to me that is discussed less and that i can't like shake and i'd love to hear your guys take on this is like asset inflation basically that this is real estate and that because they've kick-started this absolutely insane market they're just saying you know they assume that well not only you know if we buy dylan for 600 million dollars that increases the potential value of every other publishing catalog and that also inflates the value of the publishing catalogs that we've previously purchased and as long as this market keeps going like this actually the kind of like the rising tide raises all the boats so like the most like extreme scenario in an event that these funds just buy up all of these um catalogs uh with no like clear tech driven vision or like specific vision for how to make money but just hope that the catalogs will like you know make money themselves is similar to um and this goes to an analogy I think you, um, uh, both of you, Sam and Saxon, have made, I think, in the first conversation about hypnosis on the show in terms of, like, comparing it to, like, the art market or, like, comparing it to what happens at Christie's. So there there are a couple of, as part of the, you know, wider uh, trend that I'm seeing in tech of uh, opening up, quote-unquote, democratizing investment in, like, cultural assets, um, there are a couple of marketplaces that allow everyday people to buy shares of physical cultural collectibles. So this is like not related to crypto. It's like you can actually buy a share of like a Banksy artwork or you can buy a share of this rare, I don't know if you know if you got uh if you know about the game like Magic the Gathering, you could buy like shares of this uh rare like co- uh collection of magic cards. Um and like the really weird part about Black Lotus and all Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so um, Otis, O-T-I-S, is probably one of the best known um, marketplaces kind of in this landscape. And the really like strange part, at least to me, about how those work is that once you're buying a share in these artworks, it's, it's, it's even less cash flow, I guess, than what happens in music because you don't make any money until that artwork, you know, hypothetically... Uh, its perceived value is inflated and then it's sold for a higher price and then you, you know, like make a return on your investment. But even like having the chance of making um, a return as an investor, say in, in, you know, magic card or visual artwork relies on that artwork being sold over some timeline and a timeline can be very unclear and until then you're kind of just sitting on it. So I kind of see that happening in the music catalog world. Or I would not be surprised if that happened more if we see 
on the publishing side, what we've already started seeing with like Taylor Swift's faster recordings. So like a private investment firm buys this catalog, cashes in on the, you know, ongoing hype, more and more people want to, you know, take part in it. Uh, Also like that, that catalog increases in value over time. And then they kind of sell it again to a different investor, which is, yeah, depending on where where you're coming from, could be like really bizarre, uh, especially because that whole market is, even though it has like a given songwriter's name or artist's name attached to it, it is totally separate at that point from, you know, like the, the songwriter's own bank account. But that's, so it, that's kind of like an extreme example that I think is actually pretty realistic of relying purely on, you know, the assets um, inflating over time. Um, no, I was going to say there actually was just a very quickly, Music Business Worldwide just wrote a story that basically started poking at the fact that we don't know how much these catalogs are going for. We know the Dylan one because UMG purchased mm-hmm. it. And we know that when Hypnosis bought Cobalt, like what they bought from Cobalt, it was like, I think, again, over like $300 million. But typically, we don't actually know how much these catalogs are going for. And this has been something increasingly that I think folks in the financial world are getting a little bit more like skeeved out by because they're kind of like, wait a minute, you're buying catalog and then we don't know how much you're paying for it. And then you're immediately raising more money that keeps seemingly increasing the value of his, of his catalogs. And I think, I think that I think folks in the financial world who are not as like in tune with this, but are just picking up on it are starting to now see, yeah, what Sam, you were saying about real estate, this sort of like, Oh, wait, wait a minute. What is the, what are these things actually worth? And it's sort of becoming a little bit clear. And we aren't really sure what their actual worth is at this point. I'm not even sure they'd even really care about how they're going to make their money. And it might just be all about inflating the value of it. But the, because of the fact that the, because I guess going back to a, a, a point I made earlier, because the music industry is so volatile, but also changing so much. So for example, all the social media stuff that you, that everyone mentioned here, it allows hypnosis to kind of bullshit its way through. It's like about how, you know, how much it's mm. valued. And maybe that kind of goes back to your point about how some investors or financial people watching who are more financially astute are starting to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, is this, is Dylan's catalog actually this, this worth this much? We don't know that. And but because we don't know that it allows them a certain level to just like spin a fiction if they wanted to. And, and the, the weird thing also kind of to build off that and also to go back to Sherry's point is that like, unlike an art piece of artwork, like, publishing has has a consistent money flow associated with it and so it's funny to also think about them as assets because the asset price it seems increasingly um is like unconnected from that money flow like thinking Mm. about you know neil young sold half of his catalog and i was doing like very very rough back of the napkin calculations but i was like i don't understand how this is ever given you know the the publicly available like statistics how this is like gonna make back ever gonna make back the amount of money that people paid for it yeah and i also think the uh something that maybe is mentioned in these funds financial reports but it's just very different from how like vast majority of other publicly traded tech companies work i think is that even though there is regular cash flow from you know publishing and, and from streaming especially i'm pretty sure with like performing rights organizations for example pros payments will come at uh like most frequently every six months so like you're you're getting earnings data on a lot of the kinds of um you know like rights that 
uh, Hypnosis especially owns relatively infrequently. And at least from the like, yeah, the perspectives from the financial analyst side that I've read and a couple of people I've talked to on that side, their expectation is that um, no, no matter what Hypnosis or you know their peers say, we're really not going to know how well these catalogs really do for probably another two years. It's actually like quite a long timeline. It's not like, oh, the like Bob Dylan catalog, we got this publishing income or like total publishing income this amount like last quarter. I think because of the way that uh, like performance royalties are paid out, it's not even like possible to make that kind of statement clearly, at least not yet. So that's also like something important to keep in mind. Like even if the, you know, if the approach might be quote unquote innovative or if the access to everyday investors to take part in something like hypnosis is innovative, they definitely still are beholden to these like very long payment processes for um, music royalties with like certain, at least with certain parts of the publishing side, which, which like uh, reinforces kind of, you know, the muddying of the water of how well, you know, we know these funds are actually doing. Yeah. It's, it's funny. As we're we're talking more about this, I I actually do sort of keep thinking like this feels a little bit more house of cardsy every time, the more we, uh, the more we're talking about this, not because I don't think there could be legitimate business (laughs) and sort of a more sustainable business out of this. I actually do think that may actually be possible. Maybe, but I do kind of get this sense that is as the prices keep going up, I think like my personally, my internal thing is someone that like tracks all these news stories constantly is when one of these catalogs goes for like a billion dollars or something. That's kind of like my big like next like flashpoint or pivot point is like, especially if it's like a sale amongst firms as it, as in the Taylor Swift um, masters, if there's like a hypnosis buy something from like primary wave for a billion dollars or something that to me will kind of be sort of the sign of like oh this may honestly not this may honestly be sort of the sign that things may start like falling apart at some point because i just don't really know it does feel a bit more specious to me as we're talking like i don't really know how these are going to work these things out and also the other thing that's me like a little important is that like some of the firms that are backing these are backed by like pension funds and like there are actual like financial responsibility they will have to hold at some point so this can't all kind of be for show at least i don't think so so if we've kind of sketched out um the 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 lay of the land with these firms i I was wondering because one of the fascinating things to me is that in addition to like the very important question of whether or not this as a business model makes sense which i think is um very much like a, a watch this space watch these financial reports uh type of situation (laughs) regardless it feels to me that this massive incursion both of just like raw capital and also of these a new set of firms that with a new approach to thinking about business about music and the value that music has into this space seems like it's going to have to have some like long-term implications for like to to change things right um and i'd love to hear what you guys think about that because it's something i've been trying to puzzle out but like (laughs) haven't gotten very far with yeah i'll 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 try to be quick because i kind of mentioned it earlier but i think that's my concern is that the long tail of this is that song catalog basically becomes sort of the propriety of these private these private investment firms who basically are just constantly going to 
the government or the court basically to try to push up or sustain the values of the things that they already purchased. And then it doesn't really, and then you'll sort of see like things about like, oh, the, the people are in court over the Bob Dylan catalog. And you realize actually none of the people have anything to do with any of the artists and it's just entirely divorced from them. And I think that's like my like kind of concern, but I think that sort of the more, I don't know. It's kind. Of, it is like a little hard to sort of tease out like where some of like where like some of this kind of goes. I think I think this is actually kind of where I've been trying to think of this, and I haven't really. And I also will mention like Liz Kelly and my friend Henderson. We've been trying to think through this a little bit, but we've been looking more into like public, like um, like things going to the public domain and having more things just sort of like owned potentially by the state and like by the state i mean like maybe new york state or the federal government to actually have this sort of like catalogs that are like government catalogs or like they are music catalogs that are like owned by some more collective sense and i think this is something that like folks that are interested in sort of blockchain technology and crypto stuff in some of the more electronic music space have been sort of hinting at and sort of like poking around similar ideas it just sort of seems to me at a certain point that if the, like, I guess, like, to me, if there's a world where you turn on the radio and then you listen to a top 40 station or, like, a, a throwback station and, like, 70% of the money that's being made on that radio station is going to these private equity and these all these other private interests, I just can't imagine that has, like, a good, like, long-term effect on the culture that ends up sort of being reflected out there. But I actually still, and I'll kick it to Sherry, I don't really have a great sense of, like, what that even will even kind of look like because it's still a bit speculative in my head at this point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if the last year is any indication, uh, so much of like what's going to happen in the music industry is hard to predict, but I just really want to be, I want to like get inside the head of like an emerging or even like an established, but, you know, relatively newer songwriters say they've been writing songs that have, you know, top the Billboard Hot 100 charts for the last like five to 10 years, how they even see their business. Cause like I can see a lot of songwriters mm-hmm. um, like seeing what's happening with all of these acquisition deals, all of these funds like hypnosis and being like, like, am I in the music business or am I in the like fine art business, quote unquote, or like, are they increasingly becoming one of the same? And how does that then influence the way that I have to, like the kinds of songs that I have to write or like my, um, you know, how many songs I have to try to land or place every single year. Um, That's probably the, again, going back to like the, I guess like the recent rising rhetoric around ownership and how, especially in the minds of like fans, I can see this clashing. I can see like that, like ownership mindset clashing with like everything that's happening more so at, you know, like with, the top of like established artists um, of relinquishing ownership. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like, what is like, what is the end game? That's the question I always go back to. So, so I can see that. I think uh, I, I, so also to um, David, to your point about like, you know, the, the day that the, I guess like the, the, the day that hypnosis or someone else buys a certain catalog for a billion dollars. Um, I think from our research, like in the past uh, around like 15 years, funds have spent only around 5 billion uh, on like, on uh, sorry, publishers and like investment funds have raised around 5 billion to acquire catalogs. So that's all over the past 15 years. So like once someone spends mm. 
of like you know a billion dollars if such one that happens that's absolutely a bubble that's like 20 percent of <laughs> like all the activity fundraising activity that's that's been happening since you know the like early to mid 2000s so yeah so that like bubble that peak will probably arrive especially you know once certain policies like you know capital gains tax and et cetera as we mentioned earlier will be implemented kind of at the federal level but I, yeah i'm thinking first and foremost about like yeah, about the long tail, about what this means for the mindset of a songwriter. Um, where, whereas I feel like on the, like you were trying to release an album from like more like recording perspective, you're probably thinking more about ownership, more about like building your own brand and like really owning that. Whereas I can totally see new generation of songwriters and producers being like, I'm just making this music with the eventual intention to sell and like not to own anything. And it's just... Yeah, I, I, I don't really have like the perfect words yet for what that will mean for like the kind of music that we hear or like how songwriters run their careers. But it's definitely a, a different way of thinking about it. Well, maybe I'm misinterpreting uh, what you two are saying here, but it does seem maybe to play a little bit of the devil's advocate that there is a space of possibility where there would be a sort of strange bedfellows between artists and these funds like hypnosis, where if hypnosis is making all the effort they can to make sure the value of the song catalogs that they own maintains that value and continues to grow. And part of the way they do that is by encouraging that artists should be paid more in royalties. It does seem this like weird sort of working within the system where it actually could possibly help artists as well. And, 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 and I agree with you. I'm skeptical of that. And I think we should be skeptical of that. But it does seem that you're kind of like, how do I put this? It's almost like you're working within the sort of economic system in which is like heavily ingrained in countries like America, mm. where you're like, how do we like push our weight around in, in hopes of getting more royalties? Well, we have a gigantic multi-billion dollar slush, uh, you know, song fund uh, corporation come in and like buy the lawyers up to go to court or to go to Congress and demand it. You know, I don't know. It's weird. And I, like, I'm skeptical too. And I think that, you know, Sherry, you obviously make a great point too, about how does that then change the culture and like how people approach music? And, you know, and I'm, I'm, my mind is going all kinds of places because then I'm thinking to myself, well, what, it, what would stop, you know, maybe a publisher from like early on trying to like undercut an artist and be like, here, you know what? Like, like we'll just give you 20 million for like, the next, you know, for everything that you put out and I'm like in exchange, like we have control over it, you know, and then start undercutting them. I don't know. Anyways, that's, that's all speculation, but I, I don't know. I think the, I think there, there might be, and I, I don't know if you guys have, you know, I, I just, I just mentioned it, but I don't know if either of you two have any kind of thoughts on that, but just wondering about that sort of like strange relationship where it could in a weird way, maybe like help artists also who are kind of like on the up and coming or even smaller, uh, particularly around issues of, you know, payment, uh, I, it also sounds a little like trickle down economy, but <laughs> <laughs> I think this, no, this ties, um, David, I'll, um, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Cause I think you were alluding to this with like the perverse dynamics, yeah, um, yeah. conversation around social yeah, media. I yeah. So I do agree. I do think it's, I, I think, so I think one thing I will say that I really appreciated actually about the piece that Sam wrote about the music modernization act. What I think that that in the conversation you guys had about it last year helped me really like unlock what I think has been so hard about understanding the music industry is that coalition of the music industry are very, um, are very fluid. Like, 
who's on whose yeah. side is constantly changing. And yeah. depending on what the topic is, you actually, in this instance, would have a very clear sense of song- of independent songwriters, these independent financial firms being against both streaming services that are not paying them enough and against likely labels who may or may not have sort of agreements with streaming services that are to the detriment of, scare quotes, independent artists and rights holders. And they could actually probably mount a very good defense and attack against that. And maybe that could happen. And they may actually not be at all like a, and that could, could actually result in some good changes and things happening. It's just very odd. And I do hold the skepticism because I do think that, that if that's sort of the, the, like the path we go down, I have envisioned that those financial firms are going to turn their backs on those independent artists eventually. But I do think, yeah, I think it could be something where we all of a sudden are a little bit more, oh, well, the hypnosis song phone got it so artists could get paid more money. And like, eh, that seems fine because in this instance, the hypnosis song phone is actually the enemy of my, the enemy of my enemy is in fact my friend at this point. And I think that's something that I find like very helpful in this, especially in this particular conversation is trying to get a sense of like, where are your interests align? Because why UMG, I guess exactly maybe one thing also I could kick to all of y'all as well, but it's like, why UMPG, like why Universal Music Group suddenly decided to pay all that money for Dylan's catalog when they had not done this for the last like 10 plus years is to me really, really interesting because suddenly it in a way validates a lot of what Hypnosis and these other firms have been doing. Because if they hadn't done that and they weren't getting more invested into this, then it could sort of be look like an outside bubble and it can and you could sort of say, oh, these bigger publishers understand that these prices are ridiculous, which is said in the trade press, like trade press, you do see like snide comments from more established publishers and pe- people in publishing saying these are ridiculous fees. But as soon as UMPG buys the Dylan catalog for over 300 million, eh, it may be ridiculous, but if UMPG is doing it, we all have to sort of be doing it. Yeah, it's so, wild. <laughs> one level more complicated. Um, I mean, one of the things I've really been looking at in this space is when these companies, um, these independently wealthy publishers, um, <laughs> like when they're doing deals that go out of the fairly strict ambits of publishing, like every once in a while, they'll pick up masters. I can't remember. I can't remember if Hypnosis has done it, but I know that some of the other ones I think have occasionally. And I feel Hypnosis like- has gone some very little, but they've gone a little. But they gone. So some. I think for for some of Hypnosis's deals, they've um, like I think they bought a fifty percent stake in um, Rick James's catalog recently, and that was pretty comprehensive. Like masters, neighboring rights, writer share, publisher share, etc. So yeah, uh, it's not common, but it's definitely happening. Because to me, that also is where you start getting into really complicated and potentially industry-changing dynamics in addition. Because my sense, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the major labels are also, of course, the major publishers. And given the kind of basic split of money, like they're focused on masters more than publishing, right? Like if they could have a choice of like what to send more money to, they'll usually send it to the masters like they've created a system and they've done a lot of things to create this system where masters are are worth more than than publishing rights Mm -hmm. and so in some ways it's interesting because it feels like these uh finance companies uh, or or, you know um private equity firms are kind of like nibbling around like 
this kind of outlying area, like an important area, but like publishing brings in like what, uh, like 10 or 20% of the total income of the kind of overall compared to how much masters bring in. And, and the, the, when they cross over into masters and if that started happening, then I wonder if you've got a, a very different situation. This is something I know that David and I have talked about before, but like you could have a situation where, in some ways, what someone like hypnosis is doing is just kind of almost like poaching the most valuable things. Yeah. Getting the the Dylans and the Rick Jameses of the world, which the music labels have put a lot of work, you know, independent artists, independent artists or independent songwriters and like um, these massively successful songwriters like may have like come out the other side of and back into independence but like there's a complicated music industry story in between those two points and one thing you you know you you could see doing is saying like it you know broad scale like there's never going to be mass attention the way there was between 1960 and 2008 and so there's maybe never be the kind of scale of superstars that there was produced by mass industry in places like the United States, sorry, mass media in places like the U S and the UK. Um, so there's going to be a handful of stars that are going to continue to have massive value over a long period of time. And we're just going to like cherry pick those and leave the industry to like with the rest of it. And I'd be interested to see if they purchase, if they end up going into master sales more what those sales look like and how the record labels might respond. So that, again, that might be tinfoil hatland. No, I don't think that's tinfoil hatland because I think that's like happening right now, and we're just on the edges of it. And I think that's why I keep sort of restating this. But like, I find I find I'm finding this conversation very interesting just on the broad level because there is are there are so many questions with this particular like subset of in, of a, of music of a music industry trend that when you read the trade press and or you read like publications talking about this there's almost no macro level like assessment of it this is something that i that i know that Sam and i have talked about before and I, you you guys have talked on your show before but it's like when you actually read trade press publications talk about a lot of the consolidation of the record industry that happened in the like 7 in the 80s and the 90s there's very little like big picture, like here's all of the job loss that has happened since like the mid eighties, like UMPG, like you and like the creation of universal music group costs thousands of jobs. And that's just not at the center of the coverage of it. It's like mentioned and definitely you can find stories about like certainly some bad horror stories of people showing up to the offices and being told like, yeah, you don't have a job here anymore, but you don't really get a lot of that. And so I kind of do sort of think that like, us talking through some of these other broader implications is good to sort of start figuring out like just how deep some of this stuff might end up sort of going so we aren't kind of blindsided as much when it actually does start to like have those bigger ripple effects down the road because i don't i can't imagine what's happening now to your earlier question not having an effect on what music public on like the actual music culture much in the same way TikTok is a very big driver of top 40 trends right now. I don't know if like having most song catalogs owned by these like these independently wealthy like publishers will change that at, to the same degree. But to Sherry's point, it's certainly true. Like I would be very curious to know, yeah, for a, a up and coming songwriter, what do you think is the value? Like, what do you find valuable about your work from a business sense? Is it to hold on to your hold on to this hold on to your rights and your music? Or is it to sell it now 
and then just invest that elsewhere or just have the money now because you realize it's not actually as an individual songwriter your value is not going to be able to be matched by whatever these funds are able to pay 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 you at the moment and this was i think not to like knock the the new york times but they like they wrote a uh like many other publications wrote a recent profile on merck um and hypnosis it was pretty in-depth but maybe because like the piece was filed a while back or just published today they included this quote uh that merck like tells the press all the time that you know like publishing is a euphemism for not actually getting value out of songs or like you know hypnosis is not a publisher we i guess we're more like a song management fund that's like a phrase that he used um but the article didn't mention that hypnosis bought a publisher they bought um I think what could have been considered not like independently wealthy, but like actually indie a publisher called big deal music. I think that transaction happened back in September, 2020. And it was so to like have, cause Merck had like told me that too, when I wrote a piece on hypnosis that, you know, we're not a song management fund um, and, or like, we're, sorry, we're not a publisher and then proceeds to buy a publisher. Um, and it's just like the, yeah, uh, yes. While probably a company like big deal who works with like dozens of artists is, is sitting on like pretty big, catalogs um i feel like that kind of business especially because I'm, I'm pretty sure they're in the business of like developing songwriters is still like getting career opportunities for them as well it's just so fundamentally different from you know the business of uh sitting on shakira's or like bob dylan's publishing and like hoping the money will trickle in from there um so yeah so hypnosis is one of the only I guess primary wave actually might fit in this category. Um, Concord because they own you know a ton of different, <clears throat> sorry, a ton of different like sub labels, sub publishers. I, I guess they also actually fit in this category. But given that most of the like private investment activity has leaned so heavily towards the older catalogs, it'll be interesting to see how how if at all Hypnosis ends up you know combining the kind of big deal approach and like their vision with what Merck calls quote unquote song management, which is very detached from the songwriter. They have, you know, uh, very little like involvement creatively or commercially in anything after that initial transaction. Um, and then yeah. like how I, that then goes to the master site. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add that also. So like Vine alternative investments and then Eldridge. And then I think the, like the eventual music acquisition company, like some of these newer ones that are hopping in here so far do not seem to have publishing arms or have any connect and are purely just buying up these catalogs. Yeah. And maybe that is something that we should, that collective we can start trying to do better and like, like slicing the pie of all these different groups that are doing all this kind of investing is that, there are some that are closer to a universal, like are closer to a universal than they want to admit, which I think is a hypnosis. As hypnosis does start buying masters and does have publishing, it's like you're closer and closer to what you say you aren't. And then there are other firms who are purely in it for catalog and don't seem to be providing any of those other resources. And I guess to me, like if we were to see like if this is even like a legit business, it's probably looking at the ones that are the leanest and the one that just invested into pure catalog. And if they can't make that work, then that probably sort of says, I don't know, or maybe it's the opposite, where it's like, if they can make it work, then it probably says the others are also fine. But to me, it's like, I guess like trying to like to even distinguish between some of these is, is worthwhile. And I guess also my other point, I think Sherry, maybe you could point out this a little better, but it's like, 
isn't also Hypnosis doesn't also own for a number of the, the catalogs they own. They don't even like own like the actual like administration of uh, of those catalogs as well. Or am, I, or am I getting that a little confused? No, I think that is correct. So, oh gosh. Okay. How to like best explain it. So yeah. So I think also the reason that before Hypnosis kind of came onto the scene, whatever you want to call it, you know, onto the market, why there weren't as many catalogs being sold. So yeah, I think earlier I discussed the kind of pandemic specific context, but also because um, people who were interested in selling their catalogs were not, I guess that those deals did not include the administration rights, um, which involved just like controlling the actual flow of the money and the actual payment, all the proper rights holders. And that's something that, you know, yeah, like, especially like the major publishers, like that's, a, I think, a pretty big part of their business. And so they don't want to give that part up. And so it means, you know, if you own the rights, but you don't control the flow of the money, that could lead to some issues, especially, you know, given what um, I mentioned earlier about, you know, the relatively delayed payment cycles for um, music royalties for certain kinds of royalties. So a great example of this is... Um, the recent transaction of Imagine Dragons publishing catalog. So I believe Concord was the buyer. Yes, but administration is still controlled by Universal Music Publishing, which I think had previously been their publisher. And so uh, what happens in that situation is that Concord still like owns it, but the money is still technically flowing through Universal. So there's probably like some kind of like administration deal that they... Um, still have that concourse still has a universal, even though um, Universal no longer owns those rights. And this is especially. And does that impact sync licensing? It. Uh, so I think technically it would impact all kinds of. It, it would it would touch all aspects of publishing. Yeah. So it would impact sync as well. Yeah. Which to to my understanding may have to fact check me on this, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure it's like for publishing across the board. And um, this is uh, especially complicated in, in Hypnosis's relationship with Cobalt. So Hypnosis recently, you know, bought, uh, yeah, the first kind of catalog fund under Cobalt. Um, so they technically own those rights. Um, but I'm pretty sure whether it's for like that specific catalog or for like other catalogs that Hypnosis owns. Oh, actually, I'm pretty sure at least for like other catalogs that Hypnosis owns. Um, Cobalt is still handling the administration. They're a pretty big, like, you know, publishing admin business. Um, they work with a bunch of like existing um, actual publishers to kind of handle that more so than like these investment or song management funds. So like uh, Hypnosis is like simultaneously like a partner to Cobalt in that Cobalt is helping them with administration and like collecting the money because that can be really complicated. But also I'm pretty sure Cobalt like recently raised a second fund to acquire catalogs. So they're also a competitor to hypnosis. So it's a really weird um, relationship. I'm, I'm pretty sure with, with RZA's publishing or at least like the portion of his catalog that RZA sold to hypnosis, not long after downtown music publishing announced a global administration deal for the, I'm pretty sure all the members of the uh, Wu-Tang Clan, which would include RZA. So I'm pretty sure in that situation, downtown handles the administration, even though Hypnosis like owns those rights. 
so that yet to make the conversation yet more complicated <laughs> that's kind of like an additional layer that um oh yeah so why that's important is uh especially now that Merck has you know laid out more concrete steps for you know how hypnosis and, and others could negotiate uh for you know fair pay for songwriters in terms of like having negotiating leverage i think owning the admin piece is super important uh, because that has the most direct tie to, you know, whatever tech platforms um, you're talking to. So like not having that, um, you know, if you say, Oh, I have, uh, I have journeys catalog, I have versus catalog. But if you don't actually like, if you're not the point of contact for the actual money, you're kind of like lower on the totem pole, so to speak, at least in that context. So I guess complexities <laughs> at every single level, <laughs> like what a tangled web we weave. <laughs> um guys both sherry and david thank you so much for like sharing your incredible knowledge of, of all this stuff with us so if uh our listeners want to learn more and and kind of uh watch as you continue to to figure out this like fast moving place where should they check uh your guys work i'm on twitter quite a bit my handle mm-hmm. is at Sherry who and then the numbers four two so Sherry who forty two. I spend most of my time working on a newsletter about music and tech trends uh, called Water and Music. The main hub for that is on Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash/WaterAndMusic. You can find more info about that. Ooh, and yeah, you can find me on just go to Google, type in Penny Fractions, and you can find my newsletter Penny Fractions that comes out about twice a month that covers various aspects of the music business but gotten very obsessed obviously with this particular one here and yeah um uh, yeah listeners I, I hope you understand what a, a like unbelievable dream team you've had <laughs> this podcast either cherry or david anytime you guys want to come back we're more than happy to have you thank you so much yeah thank you so much and i'm sure we'll be having you back in six months time again as uh this uh tangled web uh shifts once more <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Thank Thank you you. both as well. This is for fun.